Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Almost all Americans will say that religious freedom is important, but how do we ground our thinking about religious freedom? Our guest today, Andrew Walker, is Associate Professor of Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Director of the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. His recent book seeks to provide a theological framework for religious freedom, one that I would say is particularly not only evangelical, but, but speaks really from a Baptist perspective. Uh, this, the book is called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. It's published by Brazos Press. It, just, it was just recently published uh, this year. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Aaron and Mary, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. First of all, what prompted you to write this book? Who is it for? Who, you know, who do you envision benefiting the most from, from reading this? Sure. I mean, I, I hope the book is most beneficial for lay Christians. Um, I, I want the book's arguments to have as much um, influence and accessibility as possible. That's what any author hopes to set out to accomplish. At the same time, you know, I will grant this this is actually an adaptation of my dissertation. And, and before people's eyes roll in the back of their heads, uh, I should go ahead and state up front that it's a much more cleaned up, accessible, reader-friendly version of my dissertation. The, the editors did a good job of, of forcing me to remove all of the academic minutia. But the, the real genesis for the project was asking the question, how have Christians thought about religious liberty? And, and I was particularly focusing on Protestant evangelicals. And as I was thinking about or, or, or researching that question, I really came to the conclusion that um, religious liberty is often more of an afterthought to our public theology rather than it is a foundational component. And by that, what I mean is there has really been no systematic, clear biblical thinking or theological thinking about religious liberty in, in wholesale. Rather, if you had Protestant evangelicals thinking about religious liberty, they were thinking about it in response to the Constitution. They were thinking about it in response to kind of just general theistic arguments pertaining to religious liberty. I, I wasn't noticing anything intrinsically Christian about the subject of religious liberty. And so that's what I set out to do in this book is to, is to ask if I were going to develop a, a systematic way of thinking about religious liberty how would we do it? And I know we'll get to this later, but it's it's the categories of the image or the kingdom of God, the image of God, and the mission of God. And in big seminary fancy language, we would call that eschatology, anthropology, and missiology. So I'm I'm trying to in effect create a blueprint to think theologically about religious liberty. Well, I will just say that um, you know I was able to read the book pretty quickly and and I would say that it it is it's it's a readable book so for anybody who heard the the word dissertation and uh, was concerned about that although having written a dissertation I could I also suspect that it had its genesis in a dissertation um right. but yes it's definitely a readable text I want hear cuz I I just no I just want to say I think that's really appreciated cuz I think that you know and I'd love your take on this professor you know because I think some of these issues can get very um that can be very intimidating for people right. when you talk about religious freedom religious liberty uh the the intersection of you know 
politics, the constitution with religion and all of this. And I think that a very, um, especially for Christians, like when you talk about separation of church and state and all of that, it can get very um, confusing very quickly. So is that part of what you were seeking to do was kind of come from that very Christian perspective and give very straightforward, simple advice? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of the motivation for writing it. But at the same time, while trying to make it as accessible and readable as possible, I mean, there there is there is an extent to which, you know, when you start dealing in matters of theology, political philosophy, first principles, you are going to be swimming in some deeper waters. Um, and so the challenge and the privilege of being an academic is, you know, you, you often are swimming in deep waters. But I mean, I, I don't want to write just for academics. I want to write for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ. And so, um, you know, I appreciate Aaron understanding and recognizing that it, you, you could tell it maybe had some, some dissertation uh, residue, <laughs> but it's not, it's not thoroughly uh, dissertation-esque at this point. And so I, I do hope that um, people give it serious time and consideration because this is the beauty of, of these types of conversations and these topics is they're, they're rich. And, you know, I liken it to a jewel, you know, you can turn a jewel at a different angle and something you, you see a, a new angle or, or a new vantage point arrive. And I, I kind of place myself in a, a long plot line of those who are seeking to both um, advance and retrieve necessary principled essential doctrines for us as Christians um, to, to re-articulate these principles in a new day and age in which we find ourselves. Well, I want, before we jump into the book itself, which it's it's very much, I would say, rooted in scripture, um, it, it's theological, but it's very biblical type of theology. But I think that sometimes it's easy in the religious liberty conversations to say like, you know, why is religious liberty important? Or what should we do to promote religious liberty? And all the while we've never really said what do we even mean when we're talking about religious liberty? Because um, it can mean different things and even within different within different traditions. So I wonder if you could just say, first of all, just you know, quickly, what is your working definition of religious freedom? Yeah, I, I would boil it down to kind of maybe two two principles. There's what I would call an intrinsic principle and an extrinsic principle. And the the intrinsic reality of religious liberty is the idea that when someone has an encounter or experience with the divine. For that to be an authentic experience, it needs to be received voluntarily and non-coercively. Um, so that needs to be something that's sincerely grasped that then in response, and this is, this is where the extrinsic principle comes into conversation, in response to that encounter with the divine, the, the person is going to want to live in response to what they believe is ultimate reality. And so then what does the person do? They seek to order their lives um, in a congruent way with what they believe is true. Uh, and that's what we simply would call may maybe the, 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 the ethical component of religious liberty, that uh, it's not simply, uh, religious liberty is not just about what happens in the four walls of your church. Uh, it's, it's how you're going to order all aspects of your life in response to faith. So that's how you order your vocational life. It's how you order your family life, your civic life, uh, that there's no point at which uh, we are interacting with the world where there's not a religious impulse informing our interactions with the world. 
but I mean, another another way of describing religious liberty is, I think it it's a forum for us to proclaim the gospel with as few impediments as possible. It's a it's it's an ingredient and a forerunner to someone receiving the gospel. Uh, and then third, it's that pathway for us to live out the the fullness of the gospel in our lives. Uh, and so people should be able to to believe freely and without constraint or or, or consequence. Uh, and then they should be able to act on that uh, to the most maximal extent possible up until there is some demonstrable threat to the common good where society makes approximating judgments on, on how to restrict religious liberty, which that's an important conversation to have in this is, you know, are rights absolute? And no, they're not. But that's a that's a separate category. Maybe we'll discuss here later. So as you mentioned, you, your your text is is divided up. The framework's divided up into three basic pillars. Uh, eschatology, you said kingdom of God. I kind of I, I also kind of take that as a theological way of thinking about history. Yep. Um, anthropology or, or our account of how we think about human beings or the human person, and then mission. Uh, so let's just work through those parts. Uh, you talk about how we live in this time when the kingdom of God has come, but it hasn't come in fullness. It's yeah. you know, often talked about as the already, but not yet. You know, I, I imagine a lot of people wouldn't think that's not intuitive as a way to start off talking yeah, about sure. religious freedom. And so can you tell us, can you say a little bit about how does this understanding of the kingdom inform yeah, sure. your account of religious freedom? Well, I would say initially that we believe that history is is culminating in a certain direction, uh, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, um, but at some point he is going to bring judgment on all of creation. But preeminently, he is he is Christ the King, and so his kingship means he has authority over certain domains and jurisdictions. And as I read Scripture. I see Christ having absolute sovereign uh, authority over over the role of the conscience and how someone comes to understand and grasp faith. Uh, so that that there, there's a deduction that follows from that. If Christ is king over the conscience, we have to ask the question: Then, then what authority do mediating or derived authorities or temporal authorities possess? And when I look at Scripture, I don't see a theological justification that says that the state has been authorized to make adjudicating judgments on religious error or religious truth, that the, the, the notion of these temporal authorities are there to serve the, the temporal common good, uh, their order to penultimate rea realities, not eternal realities. Uh, and so the government is neither authorized nor is it competent to get involved in religious matters. So that, that's that's kind of the, the kingdom component. But then another deduction that follows from that is this idea of inaugurated eschatology. It's the already not yet component. So that Christ is king, but he has not yet brought his kingdom to climactic end, where I should go ahead and state this right here. In the book, I describe religious liberty as an interim ethic. It's, it's an ethic for this particular age. It's not going to last into the eschaton because the very nature of a judgment is Christ is going to bring all false error to an end in the form of judgment. But that raises the question. The church right now is living um, in the in-between. We're living in between the ascension and we're living between the second coming. So what do we do with individuals who don't think like us? 
how do we solve those disputes culturally and politically? I think it's not simply a coincidence. I, I think we are to understand that because God has not given the state the, the authority to referee over theological matters, that testifies to the reality that we can live in an age where there is a degree of contestability uh, around matters of the ultimate. But because of a doctrine like, like natural law, I'm a big natural lawyer myself, uh, there are core components of morality that, that every single person has some awareness of that allows us to live lives of pursuit after the common good, however minimal that common good might be. But that means that common good is ordered to a temporal life. It's not ordered to necessarily an eternal life. Uh, and so we, we are living in this time right now where we ought to expect people to disagree with us. So if people disagree with us, do we banish them? Do we treat them like second-class citizens? Uh, or do we find prudentially wise ways to allow for people who disagree on ultimate matters to find peaceable, tranquil ways to coexist? And I think that's where religious liberty enters into the equation. Um, religious liberty is not about relativizing the claims of various religions. Uh, it's, it's simply establishing a principle of legal equality where my rights are bound up with your rights. Uh, and so, you know, to quote Benjamin Franklin, we either hang separately or we hang together on matters of religion. And when we understand that we are bound up in this together, it means that we're saying to the government that this is not your domain, that you are obligated to recognize these realities. Uh, you're not to grant or referee theological claims. Well, I wanted to also ask you a uh a question that comes from this same section um, where you talk about one of the one of the ideas that comes up a lot in this section of the book is the idea of the the importance of the covenant with Noah yeah uh, and that's that's a, a, a concept that I am somewhat familiar with from from when I studied at evangelical institutions I don't yeah. at least I can't off the top of my head thinking recall seeing this very much yeah. in Catholic ways of thinking about these sorts of issues. Although I don't want to say that it never comes up. It's just not sure. something that I see figuring all that prominently. So I'm thinking about the, our listeners probably haven't heard of this idea. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this. Why does the covenant with Noah matter for your project? Right. I mean, it, it's it's central to the, the book's thesis. And and I, I just want to go ahead and give due credit to um to scholar, actually two of them, uh, David Van Drunen at Westminster Seminary in California, and Jonathan Lehman, who's uh, a prolific author, he's a pastor in, in the D.C. area, actually, kind of building off some of the, the good work they've done here and, and see myself operating in continuity with their project. The Noahic Covenant is, I would say, one of the most um, lamentably neglected covenants in Scripture. We overlook it. Uh, we, we often want to talk about the Davidic Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and then what do we do with this, this thing we call the Noahic Covenant? Well, the Noahic Covenant, I actually say, is it's, it's operative right now. The Noahic Covenant is God's promise with Noah after the flood to preserve and sustain a common order for human civilization to persist and to perpetuate itself on. And when we look at the ingredients of the Noahic Covenant, um, to just briefly summarize, we have essentially three principles of the Noahic Covenant. We have uh, the need for a system of justice. We have a need for the family 
to continue um, in formation and procreation. And then third, we have this category of what I might call um, the cultural mandate. Uh, and so when God reestablishes uh, creation after the flood, he's, he's establishing a new creation that has concessions to living in an, in an age of sin. And there's some important entailments born of the Noahic covenant. It means that to be a rightful participant, participant in culture and in creation, one not need to be a Christian to authentically participate in culture. Uh, so insofar as one is being productive, insofar as one is pursuing justice uh, that we might construe from the natural law, insofar as one is participating in family life, every individual, regardless of theological belief, has a rightful, a rightful claim in participating in the social order. And one of the other entailments that Lehman and Van Drunen make from this is when God reconstitutes the social order, he doesn't make proper theological belief a prerequisite to participation on the world stage within creation, that people can, again, engage in, in culture, engage in family making, engage in justice. And insofar as those three ingredients are present, uh, society can organize itself around what I might call a modest account of the common good, that society does not need to be ordered around uh, a necessarily homogenous understanding of religion for society to be legitimate. So that means one's religion is not a grounds for exclusion from participation in society. And that has massive implications for how we think about religious liberty. It means that um, a Muslim in American society has rightful claim to be an American and a Muslim. Uh, and a Jewish person, for that matter, as well. I mean, and it lists all the, the various religions that you want. But it does it does mean, though, that, I mean, I, I the catch-22 here that I have to find myself thinking about is, well, how, how minimal can that common good be before you cease to have um, a habitable social order? And I would say, once those three core components are jettisoned, you do have an endangered social order. And I do think we're on the cusp of a very fraying common good. We have the family in disarray. We have uh, justice that's often uh, obscured. And um, I mean, I think you can might maybe, maybe make the case that industry and creation or in culture creation are, are doing okay, but uh, we're not a healthy society and we're testing the very limits of that natural law that God has placed within us. But all that to say, um, I just don't see an argument from scripture. And I think this follows the Noahic covenant's continued operative authority that rightful participation in the culture means that you need to believe the right things theologically. And if that's the case, then we need to have uh, a serious doctrine of religious liberty. And, and this is why I think one of the unique contributions my book is trying to make is it's trying to make a principled theological case for religious liberty. It's not an afterthought. It's actually central to understanding the nature of the age that we live in currently. I was glad to hear your response to that because I thought it was going to have to do with, you know, I thought I was going to have to disagree because, you know, our, my basement has flooded a lot over the last few uh, years. So I was going to say, oh, no, 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 that didn't work. That no more floods again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting when you 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 mentioned um, the, the family and I was thinking about all the attacks. You know, I wonder the connection with Genesis as well, because just the very definition of the family is built on our notion of of the human being as male or female. Right. And that right. strikes to the very root of, you know, that attack on 
on the human person strikes right at the very root of, yeah. of the attack on the family well, and procreation. And, and um, I think, I, I don't think it's a surprise actually, the, the rise of like a militant progressive secular left uh, as far as its devaluing of the family, its promotion of abortion, uh, you know, kind of now forays into the, the, the questioning of gender. I don't have any shock or surprise at all that there's also a devaluing of religious liberty. Because I think what all of those um, issues have in common is a refusal um, to look to transcendent horizons for our understanding of, of what is true and good and beautiful. And when we've, when we've rejected the transcendent, what we do is uh, it, it's impossible for there not to be some account of, of the common good in society. There, there's going to be something at the center of society. And what that center is right now in American society is very, very unhealthy. Uh, it's, it's rejecting God. And in its place is a secular material, materialism. Uh, and so someone could rightfully criticize my book for saying, uh, well, Walker is wanting to have his cake and eat it too. He wants society to not be, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't want government to be involved in religion, but he's also saying that if society goes too far, it can basically commit cultural suicide. And I think the answer to that is yes, that, that is exactly my argument. It's a paradox that the answer to that though, and how I, how I solve that solution is I, I want a robustly religious civil society. I want legislators who have been transformed by the gospel, who have consciences shaped by the gospel, and who vote accordingly in line with the gospel. And I think that can be done without violating institutional separation of church and state. When I, when I talk about keeping church and state separate, I don't at all mean separating religion and politics. You keep the jurisdictions in terms of the formalization of a relationship between religion and state separate. But you invite in religious persons because that's essential to the whole project of ordered liberty and self-government and limited government for that matter. In many ways, um, you know, I, I, I quote de Tocqueville in the book, but my book is very much a de Tocqueville argument, communitarian argument that liberal democracy to me is the preferable model of government. I don't think it's necessarily the biblical model of government, but I think it's a, it's a prudentially preferable model of government. But to me, liberal democracy is only as valuable as is the tradition informing liberal democracy. When you have people who define what is true and good and beautiful wholly on secular material terms, it's, it's basically saying to the religious people, we don't even understand you. You are a bunch of eccentrics and crazy people. Get out. Uh, and so if I can't even make an argument for what I believe on the grounds of, of religion that are, that are actually eminently reasonable, because what is reasonable has now been defined by secularism, you can kiss religious liberty goodbye. And so the very best of my argument, what I'm trying to do is to say, we want these constitutional mechanisms. We want these procedures. We're kind of dunking these days on procedural liberalism. Um, but I still want to defend that in order to make substantive truths. So if, if, I'm, if I'm appealing to religious liberty solely for the sake of being able to be left alone and, and to have no impact with the world, then I'm not using religious liberty as it's designed to be used. Religious liberty is there for us to make the arguments, to be persuasive, hypothetically. You know, my friend Ryan Anderson, he, he talks about this all the time, too. 
you you claim your right to religious liberty in order to make arguments, compelling arguments. And um, I would simply say we should make more arguments. And I believe what we believe is true and good and beautiful. And I'm not convinced by secularist arguments. I know secularists may not be convinced by mine, but if we can at least reach a state of reasoned goodwill disagreement, I actually think that's that's a win in my book. You've brought up two ideas that I think lead into two other questions that I wanted to ask you. So I'll just kind of tee you up, I think, to, to maybe continue your train of thought. Bringing up the, the idea of reason, making reasonable arguments, I think connects with this idea of human beings as being created or carrying the uh, bearing the image of God. I think all Christians in some form or fashion are going to refer to this the idea of the human person as being created in the image of God is going to be foundational for their moral or ethical thinking. I wonder if you could just say a bit about how this this particular pillar um, yeah. how it how it functions in the framework that you're developing yeah. here. So I mean the big fancy term that academics would use is this notion of self-constitution. When we think about being agents who self-constitute, what that really means is we are moral agents who want to live lives of meaning and purpose. Um, you want to live authentically. To do that, uh, there are prerequisite things that go on internal to the person. We have to have an encounter with the divine. Okay, well, if you have an encounter with the divine, how is that encounter actually happening? Well, it's happening through the operations of the mind, that God has ordered our minds um, toward cognitive apprehension, that we have a reason, we have a conscience. Uh, to, to say that you want to live in accordance with your conscience is, you know, you, you've grasped what you believe is true. You then want to live in accordance with what is true, not against what is true. We all know, you know, if you if you lie or you sin, your conscience is there to kind of prick your conscience to remind you, you, you have violated what you know to be true. Well, for me to know what is true, it presumes important aspects of creatureliness. And, you know, interestingly enough, when I was doing my dissertation, I was reading non-Christian historians who would more or less concede that the notion of human rights and the notion of the human person being not simply a material cog before the state, it results from Christianity, the idea that we're made in God's image. So if we're made in God's image, um, that means we have something precious, noble, dignified, and I would say inviolable about our nature that comes to us as a deposit given by God, not the state. And so the, the state at its best is going to recognize the pre-political realities intrinsic to human nature, reason, conscience, freedom, moral agency. And it's going to give room for people to have the space to live in accordance with their reason's grasp of, of ultimate reality. And in the book, I, I, I create what I call the three A's of religious liberty in an attempt to basically say to secular individuals, you may not be religious yourself, but everyone is operating on quasi-religious grounds. And the, the, so the, the categories I use are authority, authenticity, and adoration. Everyone is wanting to live an, an, a, a, an authentic life, 
true to themselves, and true, true in accordance with their mind's grasp of what they perceive to be true. They want to, they're, they're going to give their life according to some authority, whether that's God or whether that's something emanating from the self or emanating from culture. There is an authority-shaped vacuum in the heart, kind of borrow off Augustine. And then third, uh, the notion that, you know, we are, we're worshiping creatures. So we're going to give our adoration to something. It's a question of what is it that we're going to give our adoration to. So the the notion of the human person when it comes to religious liberty is is vital. And I, I want to say right here as well, people, people will hear religious liberty in relation to the person and think, oh, well, wait, are you saying that uh, why would a Christian want to defend the rights of Muslims and Jews to engage in rebellion. That's not what religious liberty is really doing. Okay. Religious liberty is not defending the merits of every single person's viewpoint. Religious liberty is doing something prior to that. It's, it's, it's respecting the integrity of the conscience. It's respecting the integrity of the faculties that come to grasp what a person perceives as true. So, so I'm a Christian. I disagree with the content of the Muslim faith, but, and it's not that I respect the content of Islamic faith. Uh, it's that I'm respecting the, the faculties of that person to allow themselves to have an encounter with what they believe is true and to have an encounter with what they believe is true and then to live responsibly in accordance with with what their faculties have grasped as true. Now, I don't think it's true. And that's why a legal principle of, of religious liberty is going to allow me to have persuasive debates with someone who disagrees with me on these matters. But I want to at least respect their faculties. And I should say here, too, when you, when you think about the person, the idea that you would compel belief is actually it's a contradiction in terms. You really can't compel belief. Belief is something that happens internal to the person. So all you can really do if you're going to talk about forcing religion down someone's throat is you're making them fake adherence to that particular religion. Because a person can only truly believe if, if it's their mind and their faculties that have come to that conclusion that that particular religion is, is true. I wonder if I could um, ask you something as a follow up to this that just it just kind of occurs to me. Yeah. Um, you know, you've brought up the issue of other of of other religions. It's not surprising that that we end up talking about our relationship to other religions when yeah. we talk about the issue of religious liberty. One thing that occurs to me is that I think a lot of people of faith, whether they're Christians or not, generally want to make religious liberty arguments when their own faith is is under threat in some way. But I kind of wonder, based based on the framework that you're that you've developed, and when you're talking about the importance of making arguments and rely and using reason, respecting other persons, I mean, do we have does religious liberty does a commitment to relig religious liberty also bring with it a kind of commitment to to discussion and debate with people yeah. of other faiths, you know, and good and good faith debate with people of other faiths, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we hear the word pluralism brought up a lot. And if you're in religious conservative corners like I am, when you hear the term pluralism, 
you know, in terms of how like theological progressives use that term, they usually mean a downplaying of differences that, um, you know, kind of the, the brotherhood of man, fatherhood of God, we're all essentially believing the same thing. We just see things a little bit differently and, and not as clearly. I actually think that's contrary to the spirit of religious liberty, because to, to truly practice religious liberty is to be willing to say, I think you're wrong. And I think perhaps eternity is at stake in how wrong you are. Um, but because I can't paper over the differences uh, and I can't make you believe, I am going to have to resort to a principled case for allowing us to coexist in, in ways that promotes social health, um, not social decline. And so the very best of pluralism is, is actually inviting clarity. It's inviting discussion and debate. And I, I, I have done this myself of late. I've been in dialogue with uh, uh, Asma Udin, who's a, an Islamic lawyer. And we did some stuff with this organization called Neighborly Faith. And it was actually really productive because uh, you have an evangelical Christian and uh, a Muslim like on the same page as far as our legal religious liberty is concerned. And there was no sacrifice of belief whatsoever to engage in that conversation. Uh, and, and moreover, if, if I have to sacrifice what I believe in order to make peace or in order to make social peace possible, well, I'm actually not being true to my own faith. So how do I create a legal and political milieu where I am as true to myself as possible and also as neighborly and honest with those who disagree with me? Uh, and how do I create those conditions where we can coexist? And I think religious liberty helps unlock that conundrum. And that's why in the book, I talk about religious liberty is it's an instrument of common grace, that it's something that I believe we should prioritize because it helps us kind of live at a greater degree of social tranquility. And I think also that that kind of that kind of debate, uh, it's it's a form of inviting clarity and, it, and it's also a form of charity. I mean, it's to true to love our neighbors. Obviously, we want their eternal good. Yeah. Um, and, and we also want them to be able to flourish as people in in this time between the between the now and the not yet right and so or in the interim period um so it, there there's a kind of there's both charity and truth involved let me ask you a little bit just if you want to say a little bit more about evangelization uh as i mentioned you know we often christians especially or at least in my experience we, we generally get into religious liberty because our own institutions feel like they're under threat but religious liberty uh, more than just protecting our own institutions, it's good for our to, for in our mission of evangelization. Can you just say a little bit more about about why it's so important for evangelism? Yeah, the easiest thing, or the you know, what I think seems most obvious is, I think it's preferable to have a legal and political context where we're allowed to share our faith without breaking the law. I mean, if you talk to missionaries, um, especially in the Middle East. They have to go underground and share their faith covertly because if they're seen engaging in proselytizing, and there's anti-proselytizing laws, they can go to jail for sharing their faith. And all of a sudden, that becomes an impediment to the proclamation of the gospel. And I'm not, I mean, God is going to advance his mission however God is going to advance his mission. But I don't think the mission of the church is at odds 
with political context. When you look at the Apostle Paul himself, he appeals to his Roman citizenship for his rights to do certain things in his context. And I think that's a that's a, a that's illustrative of what essentially I'm arguing for is if I have a recourse legally to make conditions more ripe for the communication or transmission and receipt of the gospel, I'm going to do that. You know, there's, there's, especially in evangelical circles, I don't know how this is in Catholic circles In evangelical circles, there's kind of what I refer to as like the self-hating evangelical who is basically always posturing themselves whether, where they'll say something like this. Well, well, Jesus didn't care about his rights. He handed his rights down for the sake of others. And that sounds really pious and, and quaint and nice. On the one hand, it's true. Jesus did lay down his rights. Uh, and we read in Philippians chapter two. But it's also, it's also very facile because to those types of Christians, I want to say like, okay, well, have you talked to a Chinese pastor in the underground church? Because I bet if you asked them, would they rather have your rights or their rights? I actually think that they would prefer to have our system of rights. Uh, I think a, a pastor in the underground church in China would like to be able to live his faith out in the open, not for fear that that's going to cause him to be arrested, so to speak. And there are documented instances of pastors being arrested because they refuse to abide by the state's policies. And this is particularly in China. The church can endure and thrive in the midst of persecution. I don't see any virtue in pursuing persecution as though persecution in and of itself is, is virtuous. And I, moreover, I would simply say this, you know, the phrase, the, we often hear it phrased this way, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, it can be, it's not always the case. What Japanese emperors did to Christian missionaries 300 years ago has had devastating consequences on the presence of Christianity in Japan, uh, that we're still living with downwind 300 years later. Uh, so there are real world implications for how regimes position themselves around questions of religious liberty. And, and this might be kind of a, a good way to wind down the conversation, or at least begin to wind down the conversation, is the whole reason I wrote this book is, is not to engage in culture war. I don't talk about the culture war. I don't talk about particular issues provoking debates around religious liberty. What I'm trying to do in the book is ask a central question of what is the relationship between eternal authority versus temporal authority? And how we answer that question is going to have cascading implications for the mission of the church and society. And so religious liberty is not merely this highest right that we take in order to be cloistered and off in the corner left to ourselves. It's a foundational pillar to how our entire orientation to the world around us is going to manifest. Thank you. Professor Walker, you just teed up perfectly the next question, which is um, really like, how can we promote, how can Christians promote religious freedom in our ordinary lives? We really like to end with something practical on the yeah, podcast. Sure. And so, so often when we talk about religious freedom, religious liberty, it's, it's very much in the news. It can feel very rather than something that is um, part of a building block of society. Um, so what do you have any practical suggestions for how we as Christians, how we can promote religious freedom every day? Yeah, I mean, I would say on the one hand, um, individuals need to commit themselves to personal study. 
when things become assumed and tacit, they get often lost. And so we need to have people who are committing themselves every generation to the act of retrieval and education. I would also say, um, you know, kudos to the USCCB who has, you know, a department focused on religious liberty. That's exactly what we need to have. Southern Baptists have the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And so religious bodies need to have public affairs types of organizations attached to their mission, helping kind of clear the deck, so to speak, for the public policy issues pertaining to that religious body. So well done, USCCB, you guys are great. Uh, and then third, I would say we need to, I mean, there's nothing more practical than simply voting the right way. So, I mean, I would say, ask yourself which candidates are most attuned to this question of religious liberty and are going to promote this understanding, not only that Christians should be free to, to believe Christian things, but moreover, that society is not designed to be eminently secular. Um, that when you look at America's founding documents, we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. That's, that's theistic language. You know, listen, I don't think of America as a secular nation. Uh, I think a historian said that, you know, it's, it's a nation with the soul of the church. And I, what I, I think they mean by that is one of the unique uniquenesses of American life is it's always had a broad appreciation for religion because it's understood that religion informs so much of the rest of our life. Uh, that that's the reason religious liberty is called the first freedom is that it grounds all other rights in itself. And I think that's a reflection of kind of the American creed, so to speak, if there is one. And we need to vote for candidates who will continue that type of legacy and tradition. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for for taking time out to join us. Also, thank you for for the service you have done by by writing this book in the first place. I, I think it's a helpful it's a helpful reflection, uh, and and I and especially just the point that you made about not just talking about the First Amendment, but looking into our theological traditions. I think is really key. Really appreciate it, and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. So we've been talking with Andrew Walker. His book is Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.